Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome back to another installment of Discovering the Old Testament, episode number 37 in our series. This time, we will look at one of the more colorful books of the Old Testament, the writing of the prophet Ezekiel. This book emerges out of a great displacement, the exile of the Jews to Babylon after it fell to Nebuchadnezzar in 598 BCE and again in 586, that time going down for the count. It is true that most of the intelligentsia, the ruling and financial elites, artisans, and so on, were hauled off to Babylon while a rump remained in Jerusalem. However, it's often forgotten that this was not just an exile, but a diaspora, a scattering. Babylon became and remained for centuries afterwards a major center of Jewish life, culture, and scholarship. However, this is also when a large Jewish presence started growing in Egypt. These two separate transplants of Judaism would go on to play crucial roles in both Jewish and later in Christian history. In fact, Jewish colonies started popping up all over the Near East starting at this time. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. I said that Ezekiel's work was one that reflects displacement, and so it does. We can start with the fact that Ezekiel himself was a priest and may well have been alive in Jerusalem before it fell. If so, he would have had first-hand knowledge of what had been lost. It would also have been a problem for him vocationally as a priest that was part of an effectively dead priesthood. It was quite legitimate to ask what a priest did when there was no temple in which to officiate. That problem soon solved itself when Ezekiel received a divine call to become a prophet. One has to wonder whether he appreciated the irony of being called to a class of religious figures that had often been at odds with the religious establishment, i.e. the priesthood. Of course, prophecy had fallen on even harder times, since they drew much of their raison d'etre from their roles as the watchdogs of the priesthood and the conscience of the kings. Even more profound was the loss of basis upon which much of the prophetic tradition rested. Prophets in Israel frequently made reference to the presence of God among the people as represented by the covenant. The primary physical manifestations of that covenant were the temple and the land of Canaan, and now both of them were beyond recovery as far as anyone knew. Keep in mind that Ezekiel's ministry as a prophet began at a time when the covenant was, well, history. It's also important to remember that in the eyes of most people, the prophetic tradition had been compromised, perhaps fatally, in the minds of the Jews. Our Bibles contain prophetic works from this general period, and those works were selected because these were prophets, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, who incidentally was a contemporary of Ezekiel, who got it right. But they were hardly the only ones. 
Jerusalem was awash in prophets. For example, we learn from Jeremiah that the prophet Hananiah had preached victory against the Babylonians, that God would save Israel as he always had. From what we know, it's probable that the more optimistic view was the prevailing sentiment. Jeremiah's buzzkill prophecies didn't test market very well, we might say, but boy did he ever get it right. Since so many so-called prophets had gotten it so incredibly stomach-churningly wrong, despite a few outliers like Jeremiah who did get it right, the institution of prophecy had largely lost the public trust. In fact, the whole religious structure of Yahwism was teetering on the brink, and part of Ezekiel's commission was to help restore the trust of the people in God. The prophetic idiom that we find in Ezekiel is rather different from what we see in Jeremiah and Isaiah. As the prophetic tradition developed, it tended to move away from supernatural manifestations. We find a few things like Isaiah's vision of the heavenly throne in Isaiah 6, but by and large the striking images and gestures are those of the prophets themselves such as Isaiah walking around naked for two years to represent the coming humiliation of Judah, or Jeremiah wearing a yoke to symbolize Israel's coming bondage. Ezekiel likewise engages in these kinds of theatrics, but he is also very old-school when it comes to divine revelation. His visions are remarkable, even extraordinary. His vision of God's heavenly throne is so opaque, so filled with inscrutable imagery, that Jewish tradition considers it off-limits for personal study by anyone under 30 years old. Other interpreters in more recent times have speculated that the basis of this vision is some form of psychosis, a really wild drug trip, or an encounter with aliens from outer space. This imagery includes four humanoid beings that supported and moved God's throne, each with four faces on each side of their heads, human, lion, ox, and eagle. Then there were the wheels, covered with eyes, that allowed the throne to move. This vision of God's throne, that it was capable of movement, is something very different. The gods of the ancient world were usually thought of as bound to their cities, and would only leave them if forced to do so by cataclysm or because they had decided to abandon the population of the city to some horrific fate. The moving throne of God in Ezekiel is both an implied warning that God could and would leave Jerusalem at its temple, but the vision also states that God will park his throne over Babylon, and thus not completely abandon Israel. Going back to the imagery of this vision, we should note that recent archaeological excavations in Ain Dara, Syria, unearthed a pagan temple from the 8th century BCE. In the lower court of this temple, excavators found several statues of hybrid beings, human bodies topped with the heads of humans, lions, oxen, and eagles, these are exactly the same creatures whose faces appear in Ezekiel's throne carriers. 
It's quite remarkable that these creatures, and no others, should appear at the Aindara temple and in Ezekiel. This makes coincidence unlikely. The figures found at Aindara also have upraised hands as if they were carrying something. How that iconography found its way into Ezekiel's vision is something of a puzzle, especially since the temple complex had been destroyed well before Ezekiel's birth. What does seem clear is that Ezekiel was drawing on some ancient Near Eastern iconography that spanned at least two theological traditions. The calling of Ezekiel, much like the calling of other prophets, involves both a vision of the heavenly throne and a direct conversation with God face to face. Like other callings of Isaiah and Jeremiah, what goes into the prophet's mouth is a significant feature of those commissions. Isaiah had his mouth purified by a hot coal touching his lips. Jeremiah is told that God will put his word directly into his mouth. Ezekiel is commanded to eat a scroll, which is not particularly appetizing. This scroll has words of woe and warning and lamentation written on both sides, making it doubly unappealing. But Ezekiel takes a bite and discovers that it is sweet, like honey. God also refers to Ezekiel as little man, almost as if he were a child. It's not easy to decide whether he was using it as an endearment or being condescending. But there's little doubt about God's attitude toward the rest of his people. God's commission to Ezekiel uses the word rebel and rebellious repeatedly to describe Israel, along with disobey and disobedient. The repetitions are significant. This is how scripture emphasizes something that demands the reader's attention. In fact, to hear God tell it, Israel has never really been righteous at all ever. Well, Ezekiel saw the wheel of rolling, the great big wheel of turning over. Ezekiel saw the wheel of rolling, way in the middle of the air. Great God. Ezekiel saw the wheel of rolling, the great big wheel of turning over. Ezekiel saw the wheel of rolling, way in the middle of the air. Well, great God of mine Bible declared, Ezekiel saw the wheel in the middle of the air. The great big wheel and the little bit of wheel, a wheel turning over in the middle of the wheel. The good book says, and the book don't lie, God told Ezekiel to prophesy. Then my God spoke in Ezekiel's mind, he raised his voice and began to cry. He cried, old bones, old songs are mocking, great God, the We've already mentioned that Ezekiel was a priest, but current scholarship believes that he was no ordinary priest. It seems that he was a Zadokite. In other words, he was a member of the house of Zadok that was originally commissioned by King Solomon as the official priestly family to oversee the affairs of the temple. This made them something above and beyond the typical Levite. The Zadokites served in this capacity for a good 400 years or so until the temple was destroyed. Obviously, then, Ezekiel would have a deep sense of commitment to the temple and its restoration, which is something we'll talk about later. But as a priest, Ezekiel also had a pretty clear idea of what had led to the catastrophic loss of the temple. We have mentioned from time to time the priestly source 
abbreviated as P in the Torah. P is concerned with orderly ritual, purity, law, and so forth, so it's no surprise that this informs much of what Ezekiel has to say. But in his case, we get something we haven't seen before. The book of Leviticus contains a section that modern scholars call the Holiness Code. This runs from chapter 17, with its prohibition on consuming blood, through chapter 26, which is the end of Leviticus. Sometimes this section is seen as a source unto itself, and designated H for holiness. Ezekiel often cites the law in his writings, and when he does, he quotes almost exclusively from Leviticus, especially the Holiness Code. This is significant for two reasons. First, this is the first time we see someone quoting a written law code directly, rather than making allusions to it. It indicates, by this time, Leviticus at least existed as a separate book of scripture before the Torah itself was canonized. Ezekiel is rebuking the people, literally, by the book. The second significant point is that we have a rare and crucial opportunity to see someone from Ezekiel's time actually interpreting Leviticus. That's a pretty big deal. But apart from Ezekiel being a priest and quoting from priestly material, what is his objective? The Holiness Code contains laws that cover what we might call the great crash landings for Israel, which is to say the very things that could destroy them as a nation. Widespread consumption of blood was one of these. Others included engaging in rituals and practices that were tagged as abominations. Leviticus defines an abomination as something that could introduce impurity to the Holy Land, to the point that the land itself would eject the Israelites, just as it had ejected the Canaanites as the Israelites arrived. From Ezekiel's perspective, this is exactly what had happened. In fact, when he castigates the people for their disobedience, something that happens fairly often, he uses words and phrases that recall curse formulae in covenant forms and treaties. As Ezekiel conducts his post-mortem of the Israelite nation, he gets fairly specific about the exact causes of the disaster, and this is where the book gets really interesting. Scholars have long noted that the Holiness Code is concerned with both ethical conduct and ritual purity, as though they were on equal terms. For example, it is in chapter 19 that we find the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, while the preceding chapter describes forbidden sexual unions that constitute abominations capable of defiling the land. Modern readers find these two classes of commandments perplexing since they don't seem to have all that much to do with each other. It becomes doubly strange when you consider that the land that must not be defiled is specifically the land of Canaan, from which Israel has been exiled. Actually, the land of Judah was not completely devoid of Jews. Ezekiel's ministry overlapped with that of Jeremiah's, who for the most part remained in Judah among those survivors who had not been herded off to Babylon. So there was still a Jewish presence, however sparse. There are also mentions of messengers, so the two communities were not entirely cut off from each other. 
Ezekiel clearly believed that the injunctions to keep the land pure were still in force, to be kept both by those who still lived there and those outside who might one day return. But the ritual purity laws had another function, as we have discussed before, and that was to serve as an extended object lesson, an affirmation, if you will, of the power of life triumphant over death. Sources of impurity tend to be things like touching a corpse, skin conditions, often translated as leprosy that mimic death, flow from genital organs, the loss of which was seen as a loss of life force. In other words, things that have a direct or indirect connection with death. Other impurities are things that are associated with foreign cult practices, such as certain sexual rituals, or eating something sacrificed to a foreign deity, or as part of a pagan ritual. Once the symbolic function of the purity regulation comes clear, their juxtaposition with ethical rules of loving one's neighbor, taking care of one's parents, seeing to the needs of the poor, the orphan, and the widow make a lot more sense. In fact, a famous passage in Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, compares what happened to Jerusalem with the fate of Sodom. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. But they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty, and did abominable things before me, Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel places the ethical and purity violations together as though they were of a piece. Given the purity rules as part of an affirmation of life prevailing over death, the injunction to aid the poor and the needy becomes obvious. Although Ezekiel is very concerned, even obsessed, with the sins of the people, he, however, introduces a new idea into his work, and that is the principle that a person is responsible for their own sins. They are not to be punished for something their forebearers did. He uses what was apparently a proverb that the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth hurt, and then insists that the proverb be banned. This is contrary to what we see in earlier texts, such as in Exodus, where a people can be punished for three or four generations because of an ancestor's sin, or the claim in Second Kings that the fall of Josiah was because of the sins of his grandfather, Manasseh. In fact, Ezekiel takes this one step further. He asserts that by turning away from sin, a person can avoid punishment for sins committed. Chapter 18, verses 21 through 23. But, if the wicked will turn away from all their sins that they have committed, and keep all my statutes, and do what is lawful and right, they shall surely live. They shall not die. None of the transgressions that they have committed shall be remembered against them. For the righteousness that they have done, they shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God? and not rather that they should turn from their ways and live? For a people in exile, wondering what they had done to deserve this fate, or grappling with the inherent unfairness of having to pay for ancestral screw-ups, 
This new model of divine justice would have been quite a change from the past. It was this kind of consolation we find both in Ezekiel and in Second Isaiah, the idea that even in the midst of exile, God had not abandoned his people. Gradually, this message grew from one of consolation to one of return and restoration, an idea shocking for its sheer audacity. We'll learn more about how Ezekiel envisioned that restoration next time. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.